All right, this is Plain Spoken. I'm Jeffrey Rickman. I started this channel to um, have public discourse about uh, what conservative Methodism looks like today in light of the United Methodist Church's split and the, the arrival of the Global Methodist Church. Uh, I'm joined today by Reverend Daniel Hickson, who is clergy like me, uh, was in the UMC, is now in the GMC. Uh, Reverend Hickson got uh, sort of famous, internet famous on YouTube, when he um, put out a video kind of explaining where things were about a year ago in the United Methodist Church. It's had 75,000 views. So you've probably seen his face if you've been looking at any of this stuff. I, uh, I wanted to talk with Daniel, kind of compare notes as clergy, but lest you think this is going to be too nerdy in the clergy area, um, one of the things that Daniel and I have a lot of overlap over is uh, family ministry and how to minister to our families. And so um, I would urge you, even if you're not clergy, to, to stick with us, hear us um, exchange some information, best practices. Uh, I'd like to think that this is going to be eminent, eminently practical for a lot of people. So, Daniel, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? Man, I am doing all right, and I'm, I'm glad to be here, glad to have this conversation. I should, uh, one, one little uh, correction, though. I'm actually an independent right now. I'm a free agent, as I've been telling people, and so uh, I'm not affiliated with a denomination. So it's a really weird, for me, it's a weird space to be in um, coming out of the UMC and now kind of I'm, I'm in this in-between place. So, uh, so and, um, wow, I'm sorry, I misspoke. Yeah, you're not GMC clergy. You are a lone wolf uh, clergy. I am. Okay. <laughs> I'm one of those people they warned you about, man. Uh, so... Uh, no, we are. Uh, I just got to this uh, congregation um, that I'm serving now at the beginning of June, and uh, we haven't had a lot of conversations. They're very hesitant, I think, about jumping right into something. Sure. And so uh, we'll see. I've had some very preliminary conversations with the bishop, um, the ACNA bishop of this area, and and maybe something will develop in that direction. But I'm pretty open uh, to different possibilities at this point, including the GMC. But um, not not limiting it in that direction. Yeah, so. as you as you, I I will try and help us not fall into acronyms too much. ACNA is yeah, Anglican yeah, yeah. Church in North America. This is one of the denominations that conservatives leaving the UMC are looking at as a, a serious affiliation option. Um, one of the things that that people are going to instantly notice about you, and I've done it too, but I don't. Uh, you're, you're wearing a collar and a cross necklace. You're obviously more comfortable with um, outer symbols of high church Anglican um, normative, uh, what, yeah, I guess it's the Anglican and Roman traditions that typically wear collars in the United States. So that's one of the things that people might safely assume about you is that you value liturgy and order and um, uh, that you would be open to, to something like the Anglican church. So uh, yeah, in, in the video that you put out, United Methodist Church split as I see it. I'll try and put a link to that on on this video, um, you talk about there being um, something within the ACNA that is is aimed at so, something sort of like a Methodist revival movement that would be very open to Methodists rejoining. Um, is is that still going on? I don't remember the title of it, but do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, 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 um, yeah. There's been some conversation, and um, it has been just to be honest, uh, rather slow to develop from, from my point of view, cause mm -hmm. I'm, and maybe it's just, I'm in this transitional place and I want stuff to be, you know, now. Yeah. Um, but, but there's been some conversation. Uh, the Aldersgate mission society is the one that Winfield Bevins was spearheading, 
but I think he's on like leave of absence right now. If you know Winfield, he's up at Asbury um, <laughs> and um, teaches some of their Anglican courses, I think. There's also a group very, very kind of still sketchy um, in out of Denver talking about uh, what they're calling a circuit rider society. And, and I think it's kind of a similar idea um, of, of forging kind of bridges between uh, the Anglican Church, North America, and, and Methodists. Um, and so we'll see how all this stuff develops. <laughs> but um, it, I, I do wish it was developing a little faster. But uh, I think they're trying to figure out how to receive churches uh, from the Methodist tradition and uh, how much they have to become like, just like other Anglican churches, how yeah. much are they staying kind of different, you know, and how does that work yeah. with their existing structures? Um, so I may just have to be a little more patient with some of that. So uh, where, where are you with respect to the global Methodist church and other Wesleyan bodies? So I, um, I've got a lot of friends and colleagues, obviously, who are um, involved with the GMC, the Global Methodist Church, and, and even some of my seminary professors, I think, were kind of at a high level helping to get that, get that go and get it launched. Um, so I've, I've got great respect for the GMC and, um, you know, may end up talking with them later on. We'll have to see. Um, but um, it wasn't my first choice. And, and the reason why, and I, I'm thinking about making a video of kind of talking about this, mm-hmm. if, if the ACNA thing uh, develops more. But um, to me, it's like, okay, I've got an opportunity personally, and I can either participate in launching yet another Protestant denomination, yeah. or I can like go back up one rung of the ladder uh, to where we came from. And right. I thought that was at least worth exploring. Um so that's what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really hurt my conscience as well that when Christ prayed for his church to be one, as he and the Father are one, that we continue to willfully participate in splintering rather than right, right. unifying. I, I feel that. Yeah. So, yeah, the uh, question— Especially since I've encouraged a lot of people to leave, you know. Right, uh, yeah, what do you leave to? We're talking about. Yeah, so. well, and the, the thing I wanted to be hopeful about, and I, I haven't given up hope, uh, the Global Methodist Church. I remember a lot of their rhetoric a year or two being a year or two ago. Being we've had a number of other Wesleyan bodies show interest in combining with us. That that the GMC mm-hmm. could actually be an effort at combining a number of Wesleyan strains back together, which would be awesome. I would love to be a part of that. Um, it's hard to keep all the conversations going at the same time. I haven't heard much about that recently, but. I, I am hopeful for a future. Well, and a big part of my my plain spoken effort is trying to create a coherent sense of what it means to be a Wesleyan, so that uh, or a, a Methodist. When you claim to be a Wesleyan Methodist, what does that mean? And should we really all be separate from one another, or is it possible that we might come together if we have the right leadership and structure? Um, I, I can be kind of Pollyanna ish about these sort of things, but I'm definitely. Uh, <laughs> not interested in a continual splintering. So I definitely right. can validate where, where you are there. Um, so one of the things that we talked about in setting this up was um, there is a strong charismatic movement within those who are leaving the United Methodist Church. When you look at, say, David Watson and Firebrand and the folks up in, I think they're in Dayton, Ohio, a, a lot of that is is very focused on reclaiming uh, the charismatic tradition. Of course, it was very strong in early Methodism, and um, not that the two are mutually exclusive, but they are two different things. There's also high church Anglicanism, 
which is a, a tradition that, that John and Charles Wesley, of course, were instantiated in and, and felt like there was a lot of good stuff to offer. Um, there's the Book of Common Prayer and uh, the liturgical year and the, uh, the liturgical order of worship. There are a lot of things that um, people like me, and I would assume you get concerned about throwing the baby out with the bathwater when you leave the United Methodist Church just going full tilt, non-denom, charismatic aesthetic, right. and really leaving a lot of our, our moorings and, and uh, 2,000 years of church history in order. Um, how, how, how realistic do you think it is that there is a future of Methodism that is also liturgical and, and representative of an older church tradition as opposed to the movement of the Spirit and uh, a continual renewing um, kind of disordered. I, they wouldn't say disordered. No, they might say disordered. Yeah, well, speak on that for a bit. I'm butchering it. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, well, I think you're exactly right. I mean, if you if you look at the early Methodist movement, there are all these different strands. And one of the things I love about Methodism, about Wesleyanism, is Wesley's attempt to hold these things together. Mm -hmm. And so you do have what you might call proto-Pentecostal stuff happening in some of the um, – the, the revival meetings and stuff where people are falling down and, 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 you know, uh, making odd utterances and, yeah, and barking. Stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And some of it, of course, is just crazy stuff where people are coming to, uh, you know, have a good time or whatever, sure, but, uh, yeah. mess with the religious people. Mm -hmm. But, um, so, but you do have this, this kind of openness to the spirit can do some stuff that we might not have expected. And uh, you mentioned David Watson. Um, he was actually my Greek teacher, uh, at, when I was at Perkins and uh, I, we only interact a little bit on, on social media now, but I consider him a, a good friend and, mm -hmm. and somebody I respect greatly. Um, and I'm very glad that he's been involved in, in some of this stuff um, with the GMC and, and just where Methodism is going. And so, um, so that was a piece of it. But you did have this liturgical and sacramental piety, at least for John and Charles Wesley and, and some of the other early generation. That was very important. And, you know... I've talked a lot about this on my channel. When when Wesley <clears throat> helped the the Methodist Episcopal Church get launched here in the United States, he sent him a bishop, uh, Thomas Koch. He sent uh, the Articles of Religion, but he also sent a prayer book, yeah. uh, the Sunday Service book. And in the in the preface or the letter he attaches to it, he says, "I believe there's no liturgy in ancient or modern language that breathes more of a rational scriptural uh, piety, and, and then the the Common Prayer Book." And he talks about how it's beautiful and it's elegant. And it's solid. And so that was also, even late in life at that point, that was part of Wesley's spirituality. Mm -hmm. And, of course, in, in his uh, sermons, in the means of grace, especially in the duty of constant communion, you get a good sense of his, his Which understanding. Which is a sermon he wrote, The Duty of Constant Communion. It's a very correct, popular sermon correct. he wrote. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, where he talks about this is a means of grace, and you receive, or God at least offers to you, uh, the... The, the presence and the power of the body and blood of Christ and, and the benefits of his atonement and, and the forgiveness of sins. And, and Wesley has a very high view of this. And I think that has kind of gotten uh, muted at times in, in Methodist history, mm -hmm. at least in the United States. Um, but I am very hopeful for a, a, a Wesleyan uh, spirituality that retains all of that that says the liturgy that we inherited is good and beautiful and solid and mm. it's worth keeping and using and we need an openness to the holy spirit and one of the things that wesley did in that prayer book and i think there may have been some puritans who were kind of um arguing for this prior to wesley 
but he he had basically the 1662 prayer book but he inserted some rubrics at certain places not very many but a few places that says the minister could lead extemporaneous prayer here mm-hmm. and so he's taking a very structured service but he's creating space within it for mm-hmm. unstructured prayer and i think that's a very wesleyan impulse to do something like that. And of course, that's very common now, even in the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Church. Uh, that's something that's come into the tradition. Um, but that's a very Wesleyan move. And, and, and I think that's a good thing to say. Our services, our, our spirituality, it's not going to be all one or all the other. We're going to try to hold this together, the liturgical and, and kind of the, the free-flowing move of the Spirit. So I, I think that's a very good thing. Um, to try to incorporate into what we're doing. Yeah, and, and there's there's a real polite tug of war happening right now in the the GMC. Um, it's not at all certain which way this is going to go so far as any kind of normative liturgical practices that are shared across the body. Um, in order for it to be meaningful, it has to be shared, you know, otherwise you're just that one weird church doing things liturgically. Uh, which is kind of what has happened in the United Methodist Church. It, it really has kind of become a very siloed. Um, each each church is very different. I, I wonder how much a, a, a shared, you know, this is the period we're in right now is figuring out how much of an identity are we going to share together, and then how much of it's going to be different. But you know, we're we're very clear that that Wesleyanism and it's an auth- in its authentic form is a balance of uh, uh, works and uh, faith, you know, faith and works, and, um, you know, social holiness and, and uh, personal holiness. You know, there are a number of things that we hold in tension. Can um, liturgical order and the movement of the Spirit also likewise be held in tension across a Methodist connection, or are we just going to have a lot of local churches that say, no, we, we don't have patience for this. This is a sign of where we came from that we want to get rid of um, and I, it doesn't seem to me that, that it's clear which way it's going to go. Um, so far in GMC gatherings that I'm watching, it's very much uh, more informed by the worship you see on TV than the worship that Christians have been doing for thousands of years. Um, so mm-hmm. I'm, I'm wanting to host a, a worship service here in the Tulsa area that is more focused on traditional hymnody, at least, and focusing on doctrine over feelings um, it's very difficult to hold all these things in tension. Um, and, you know, I, I care about liturgy, but then I find myself also not having the patience and diligence uh, for it as well. But I say that, and I think where you and I will come to at the end of this conversation is talking about the Book of Common Prayer and its role in leading family discipleship. Uh, before we get to that, I want to talk more about you as a person. How long have you been in ministry? Um, well, I guess it depends on how you, how you define ministry, right? I, um, I'm 40. I'll be 41 in just a couple of days. Mm -hmm. Um, when I was in college, I started working as an intern with a children's ministry and a youth group at a big downtown, uh, United Methodist church. And so that was my first taste of like being on staff at a church, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, went straight into seminary out of college. I was commissioned in 2007. So I think I've been a full-time pastor about 16 years now. Um, is that right, Matt? 
yeah, but um, yeah, I think that. Fits, so it's, yeah. it's 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 been a while. Yeah, um, I'm I'm not quite to that point where I've been doing it half of my life, but I'll be there pretty soon. It's been a yeah, so. and you came in in the United Methodist Church. Uh, at what point did your wife come along? Um, so my wife, interestingly, so I was a, a youth intern in yeah. college. That's yeah. where I met my wife in the youth group. Okay, scandalous. Okay. But uh, we oh, actually she was one of the about, youth. She was one of the youth. Yeah. Oh, yes. But, um, okay. We started dating about six years later, though. Sure. So it was, it yeah. was it's quite a while quite a while after that. Um, and she went. She was actually grew up Presbyterian. Okay. And her family was at an EPC church. That's Evangelical Presbyterian Church. But she went to our youth group because it was big and and you know happening. Um, so she went to a United Methodist Liberal Arts College here in Louisiana. And, and was kind of getting drawn more into Methodist circles. And it was while she was in college, we started dating. And um, obviously, I swept her off her feet. And yeah. so the yeah. rest is history, you know. Um, so we got married. I had been, my first uh, appointment out of seminary was campus ministry. And I was doing campus ministry, I was in my fourth year uh, when we got married. And so we were only doing campus ministry together in Lafayette for about a year before I moved up uh to take a, a church. Great. So yeah, I met, I met my 13. wife in seminary and, uh, she, she didn't want to be married to a preacher. And then I, uh, am a persuasive person and she's very happy <laughs> to have married me at this point. But, um, yeah, we, uh, I, I'm always curious with clergy how and, and where they met their spouse, because it is quite a thing to, to date, uh, clergy. <laughs> um, yes. so you, in the United Church, right. Yeah. You know, like, and everything. So where did you do undergrad? Went to LSU, Louisiana State University. Okay, okay. And then you did seminary at SMU in Dallas. Correct. Did you have an emphasis in your uh, program? Not really. I um, I kind of just took whatever I was interested in for sure. my electives and stuff. So it was a lot of history and theology classes because that's what I was interested in. I did. It was kind of a Maybe serendipitous or providential thing. I, I took several courses in uh, Presbyterian history and theology and Anglican history and theology just because mm-hmm. I was interested sure. and they were available sure. and it fit my schedule. But um, my first uh, job out of seminary, I said, was campus ministry. It was actually a shared ministry with the Episcopal Church and the Presbyterian Church. So that actually wow. kind of came in handy a little bit. It um, sounds like it, yeah. As, as, as it would happen. So yeah. that was a cool thing. Let me let me ask you. Uh, you seem to be particularly well informed. You know, most clergy I know within the United Methodist Church or the GMC really have a hard time having patience for details and developments along the way. Um, mm-hmm. When you put your big YouTube video together, the the United Methodist Church split as I see it, <clears throat> was that the byproduct of just reading your weekly news digest from the United Methodist Church, pretty much, or are you a well connected person? Or at that point, were you that that knew some of these people in the know? And uh, how, how how did you piece this whole? I had to work very hard to do it myself. I was, I'm just curious about you. Yeah, same thing. I mean, I I've been following some of the um, like Good News Magazine and the Confessing Movement like for years, maybe decades at this point, you know. Yeah. And so I was aware of some of the developments. Um, I had had personal conversations about some of the stuff. Uh, going back a few years with bishops and DSs and people who I took to know a little bit more than me. Um, but it, it was mostly just, this is what I know from having paid attention for a long time. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't like I had 
movers and shakers on the phone or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's weird. You know, a, a lot of times I realize there's so much more I want to know before I speak on a topic, but a lot of people know so much less than me that really they just mm -hmm. need someone to talk even if their knowledge is incomplete. And I've had some people pick on me for that, and I'm going, well, heck, I'm, I'm preaching on mysteries I don't fully understand every Sunday. I'm just doing my best that I can. Do you... Yeah. The, the way that you pitched it in the video I thought was really fair, where you're trying to explain how it is that we find ourselves at this point of, of deep divide in the United Methodist Church, and you acknowledge that the presenting issue is over sexuality, but it's a lot bigger than that. And you put it on scriptural authority. People on the left mm -hmm. uh, very regularly retort, no, the, author the scriptures have authority in our uh, lives as well. We just pick different scriptures, or we, we interpret some more literally than you guys. Uh, and then some, some will just say, yeah, you're right. We don't value the scriptures the same. Um, do you, as you've continued to watch this situation... I, I'm going to go in the direction of the ACNA after this because I, I want to hear your thoughts on this. But do you have a sense for what it is that really ruined the UMC or corrupted the UMC that that validated leaving it, or is it still something that's kind of big and amorphous? And um, does it feel like it's a big coherent thing, or does it feel like it's a lot of things? Uh, do you have your your finger on the pulse of what that is that we had to leave? Yeah. Um... That's a good question. And because, I mean, there are people that I very much respect who are not going to leave, or at least not yet. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we'll see how things play out because we don't know the future. Um, so that, that's, that is a big question. Like, is this worth, you know, leaving and, and leaving relationships and, and all that stuff? Um, so for me, there were a couple issues that I just couldn't get past. And, and one was the sense that... Um, not only bishops who were living in, in you know, same gender marriages or, or conducting them or condoning them or whatever, mm -hmm. like people who are flagrantly violating the discipline around that. Right. But just a broader kind of culture of, yeah, we take these ordination vows and these consecration vows when we're ordained or when we're made bishops. But, you know, we don't really do all that stuff or we don't really mean all that stuff. And, mm -hmm. and it to me, that seems pretty widespread, at least in my experience uh where it's like we kind of snicker when we ask the historic questions of clergy who are about to be ordained and and that kind of thing and and so for me there was a disconnect between what we were doing on the ground at least in in my context and that disconnect wasn't very much 10 years ago but it, it's becoming more noticeable and what we say on paper this is who we are this is what we believe this is what we're about yeah and so and just on a personal level, it's like, well, which of these am I supposed to represent, right? Like what I said I was going to represent, what we say on paper, or what most of my colleagues are doing or affirming or whatever. Right. Um, which of these is really us? So it gets back to that identity thing right. um, that you've already brought up. Um, so that was that was a big deal. And I just got to the point where I was like, <laughs> I, I've told several people, I left the United Methodist Church because I believe the beliefs of the United Methodist right. Church. Isn't that a crazy place and to be so, in? Yeah, uh, yeah. that's that's kind of how I felt about it. Yeah, uh, in my one of the things that really infuriated me, I, I never made it through the ordination process. Did you? Oh, yeah, yeah. I was ordained in 2010. I got to provisional elder, and then they wouldn't let me get any further, so I dropped out, and I, I wrote up this whole 
um, Substack article called Old Ordination in the Global Methodist Church, where I kind of recounted my history of, of failure uh, year after year, at, at, uh, appearing before three different boards of ordained, ordained ministry. Um, but to, to see, all I really said was regurgitating John Wesley's theology and trying to practice what, what we know he practiced. And to, to get to a place pretty clearly, John Wesley couldn't get ordained in his own denomination. Um, it's just kind of scandalous that they created uh, the anti-Methodist Church within the United Methodist Church. And so I, I, had, uh, I had conflicted feelings about leaving because John Wesley himself, he said, um, you know, there, there was a certain tolerance for a certain degree of corruption within the church because this side of heaven there's going to be. But he right. said, until um, a church doesn't let you practice what the Bible clearly commands or commands you to practice something that the, the Bible clearly condemns, until you reach that point, you cannot leave the church. And um, I'm clear on that theologically, but then whenever I'm responsible for a community and assets that were built up over a hundred years for God's glory and to honor the history of people here in uh, Nowata, Oklahoma is where I'm at, then it, 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 it just sent, seemed really irresponsible to just say, yeah, okay, we'll, we'll go along for the ride, and whenever they finally um, change doctrine to a, a, an un, unconscionable place, then we'll try and leave, knowing that we're probably going to be trapped um, that that was the deal for me. If if I had any hope that they would be um, faithful in letting unwilling constituent congregations leave, I would have held on longer. But I just I see this door closing at the end of the year. Did you see things pretty much the same way? Yeah, I, I my take on that was, and this was based on some conversations where I did call people who mm-hmm. I'm like, you know, you've been to general conference or you're in some of these conversations, and it was like, do you think this opportunity to leave is going to become a permanent feature or something's going to be extended. And it was like, no way, no how. So yeah, it, as I see it, it was kind of a confluence of the special session of general conference, introducing the, the disaffiliation clause combined with the general commission, kicking the can of, of general conference years and years down the road, combined with things that the bishops were doing, combined with people withdrawing their support for the protocol and, and combined with, floating the protocol to begin with, like all these things to me kind of created this perfect storm where now we've got the disaffiliations, you know, happening. And, and it, it did seem to me like you want to honor the, the, the history of the church, but also of the local church. And it felt there was a conflict there. Right. Um, you know, and so it was like, maybe we should just bite the bullet and, and go while we know this door is open. And, um, because I probably would have stayed longer, you know, if if um, if the door had been open for say eight more years or something. Sure. Um, just to kind of let's see what the next general conference does, and let's let's just see how it plays out. But it was one of the things. The door was closing, and once people started going, and once big churches started going, it was like it, it created its own momentum. Yeah. Um, so um, I, I, something you said a minute ago, I wanted to come back around to, and I'm, yeah. oh oh oh, in Louisiana, uh, I was actually on the board of ordained ministry. For several eight years, I guess, and and we we had conservative evangelical pastors and progressive pastors come through, and we really it, it was hard to it was hard to wash out of our process. I think um, you know you, it had to be really egregious theological issues. Um, we did have one person I remember wash out because she could not articulate sin, 
as like a real thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, so it had to be really bad. And, and, and I'm in the eight years I was on, it was probably only like four or five people. Wow. Um, so we did not have the, the kind of gatekeeping. It sounds like you experienced. Um, and, I, and when I started, we had a relatively, uh, certainly Orthodox, relatively evangelical Bishop as mm-hmm. well. So th- I think that makes a big difference in the culture of the conference. And in our conference, that has most certainly changed um, in the years since I was ordained. Yeah, so. remind me, I, I haven't looked into Louisiana a whole lot. I've, I, I think I covered one church in Louisiana. It seems that the bishop was behaving not well. What, are you, have you kept yeah. track of things there and, and what developments in Louisiana look like, or have you just wiped the dust off your feet and not listened to Well, anymore? no, because I, I mean, I've, I've really only just come out uh, of the conference you mm-hmm. know, a few weeks ago. So um, when I was ordained, Bishop Bill Hutchinson was our bishop. In um, what years is in 2012, um, Bishop Cynthia Harvey came in. I think she went to the Texas conference now. Yeah, and so she was the bishop for most of this process. We did like a lot of conferences get a new bishop at the first of this year, mm-hmm. um, Bishop Dolores Williamston, mm-hmm. and I've gotten to know her a little bit through disciplinary processes and stuff. Uh, but um, so, but but Cynthia Harvey was here for a lot of it. I would say the the conference leadership. Uh, and, and most of my experience has been the district superintendents, but also the bishops, mm-hmm. uh, has not done a great job in Louisiana and has taken steps that have really pushed more people out of the conference yeah. than probably would have left. And um, and I realize this was their first church split, too, and I, so I try to be charitable with them. Um, and they probably, like me, would have done some things differently, you know, with hindsight, uh, if they had known. But but yeah, I would say they, they really botched some things. I mean, just a few weeks ago, we had a wonky situation where one of the last remaining kind of Orthodox district superintendent um, sent an email to his district and said, hey, I've been, um, I'm not being reappointed and I've been removed from my ministry and I don't really know why. And then the next day, an email <laughs> came out from the bishop to the whole state that says, oh, he's on vacation. Uh, and we were all like, what the heck, y'all? <laughs> That's crazy. Um, yeah, so there's been some crazy. Uh, I, I'm remembering now the the church I reported on was Shreveport uh, First Church. That, yeah, uh, yeah. The, they uh, voted out uh, amid all kinds of hijinks. That and there's a lawsuit. Yeah, it's been a while since I covered that. Um, yeah. it just seems messy and dishonest. I mean, it's the same beast in lots of annual conferences, um, and it's impossible. You know, for me, this isn't even my full time gig to to keep track right. of it all. But yeah, it's even in these southern areas where uh, conservatism is much stronger on the grassroots level, there is still this elite class that leans left that takes over the, the, the levers of power and really gums up the works. That's just really frustrating. So it's, it's everywhere. Um, I, I wanted to turn it to the ACNA now because about a year ago, year and a half, I started reading articles about uh, rising, rising leftism in the ACNA and uh, leftist sympathetic people, again, claiming levers of power. I I think uh, it was around the publishing agency that they have. Uh, The particulars of it are kind of escaping me at the moment. But uh, do you know what I'm talking about? Have they struggled with the same battle over again, even after splitting off from the Episcopal Church? I, so I I really don't know enough about that. I mean, I can give you my impressions, but a lot of, you know, uh, stuff that I'm gleaning from like Facebook forums and stuff. So I don't, I don't know 
I don't know enough to really speak. Okay. Let me qualify what I'm about to say. I don't know enough to really know what I'm talking about, but sure. let me say something. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, let's do it. I, my, my impression is that uh, there may be a little bit of that, of, of more left-leaning um, churches or, or uh, high-profile individuals, but my impression is it's much more of very conservative um, folks who are very sensitive about that because of the history with the Episcopal church. And it's like stuff that I would look at and kind of call that's kind of moderate. It's not really that far out there. Some people are like, Whoa, wait a second. Look at, you know, okay. They're they're still sensitive. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 Well, that's, that's kind of what I understood the situation to be. I'm, I'm kind of encouraged, you know, I, I've been talking with, I did a series, I'm doing a series interviewing people in other Wesleyan denominations and figuring out how, how sensitive are they to the, uh, invasion of, of leftist, liberal, progressive, worldly ideology. Um, because it it seems to me, one of my concerns about the GMC is we still, the people coming into it are not entirely clear about how that ideology works mechanically, the ways in which it, it kind of, uh, comes in. So I'm, I'm, I'm interested in those bodies that have some of those antibodies, uh, defense mechanisms against, uh, what I would consider to be a hostile ideology. I'm interviewing a guy this Friday who's laity within the uh, Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, which is supposed to be the conservative uh, Lutheran Church, but he publicly commented against wokeism uh, being evident in their their newly revised um, larger catechism. Um, is that what it's mm-hmm. called? Anyway, um, all of a sudden, the whole machinery of the denomination is against him and trying to kick him out of his local fellowship. And so it just seems to me... Uh, as we're talking about what it is that we're leaving, I'll speak for myself, what it is that I left in the United Methodist Church is actually much bigger than the United Methodist Church. It's a it's an ideology that infects um, lots of institutions throughout the West, and um, if you don't get away from it, there is no fighting it. They just, unless you can expel them, they will infect you. And so it's just a really frustrating time to do church but then also the thing I'll put to you is when you read church history, across 2,000 years of history, there have been very pure times of revival and renewal and, and fervent Christianity, and that never maintains. It always sells out at some point or another, always gives in to worldly forces, and then there needs to be a splintering off. Um, what hope do you think there is for a maintained, sustained movement of righteousness within the Church of Jesus Christ this side of the eschaton? <laughs> um, that's a good question. I, I um, have a very robust uh, understanding of sin, uh, and I, I'm never surprised when I find that the church is corrupt or church leaders are corrupt or uh, things like that, or that, that we're not doing what we should be doing, um, because I, I really do understand that, that uh, the effects of sin continue to affect all of us, even even among believers. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I, I, I don't expect like a, a purified uh, church in that sense um, where we're rocking on all cylinders for any length of time. I mean, it's going to happen because the Holy... I, I, so pair that with, I also have a robust theology of the Holy Spirit. Sure. And I've even had charismatic experiences and, and the Spirit does step in and work miracles and do things. And so... I kind of expect that to be a sort of a continuous dynamic until the Lord returns. I mean, the churches are going to 
go off track or, or things are going to go wrong. And the Holy Spirit's also going to work renewal and revival, sometimes at the exact same time, you know, in different places. And, yeah. and so um, if you look at the history of, of the church and even Israel in, in Scripture, uh, there seems to be a lot of this sort of back and forth, and I kind of expect that to continue. So, uh, yeah. yeah, for sure. And and well, I try not to really get worked up about it. It's kind of like we just need to do our part and try to be faithful where we are and understand that's going to happen, but also understand that God is going to win. And um, even without me, <laughs> you right. know, uh, and, and what I think I might contribute, but he'd rather win with me. And so um, – and, and just to kind of have that confidence in God. Uh, well, and that's that's one of the things, you know, the, the, the doctrine, one of the only doctrines that John Wesley said was unique to our tradition. He called it the, Durant, the grand depositum of the Methodist tradition was the doctrine of Christian perfection and the notion that an individual might be entirely sanctified this side of heaven, which I take to be in this, this, this um, competition between sin and the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, this side of heaven, is obviously much more powerful than sin. So on an individual level, at least, there is an optimism about there being no limit to what the Holy Spirit can accomplish. I, I find, you know, my previous question to you is, is based on, you know, Methodism started off with such purity. It did have these antibodies against sin and unrighteousness. And over time, we just jettisoned that because sin turned out being more powerful for one reason or another. But I still... I said I'm Pollyannish. I I like imagining a future where there's an institution that is just not able to be corrupted, um, that that is standing firm when Christ Jesus comes again in glory. And I want to invest in that, this side of heaven. And I think I think that is something that that most clergy want to invest in. But we we just know we can't be crestfallen when the things that we invest in fall through. And we just you know we're going well shucks you know what's the point so. We know the point right. is glorifying Christ Jesus in the time and space that we have. So, let's. Are you ready to turn to the the meat and potatoes of, of family ministry at this point, or is there anything else tied? Yeah. To all? Okay. So yeah, well, there's a million things we could talk about. I'm sure yeah, there yeah. is. Yeah, a lot of shared passions. But one area that I really haven't talked about on Plain Spoken, <laughs> and I think you've talked a bit about on your channel, is ministering to our families. Um, the the way in which I'm familiar with this is one of the things that Luther reclaimed in the Protestant Reformation is the notion that every family, every household is a little church unto itself, that, that the primary unit of the church is not that building that all of the families come to, but it's actually the household where on a daily basis, fathers and mothers are responsible for upport, upholding uh, righteousness, co collective communal righteousness in the home where Christ is Lord. So um, is that, uh, uh, to your knowledge, have I portrayed that uh, uh, rightly, and is that a vision that you're ascribing to? Yes, uh, yes and yes. I, um, of course, my, my oldest daughter is six years old, so, I mean, as a pastor, I was thinking about this before, but mm -hmm. I'm thinking about it differently now. I mean, just, uh, you know, you have to in a way, um, because what, what my devotion like, because when it was me and my wife, it was like, well, she had her devotion in life and I had my devotion in life and they were both happening, but, mm -hmm. uh, it wasn't all happening together. Sure. And so, um, and we have different styles and you know, all that jazz. So one of the things that since having children, I'm like, okay, I really need to think about this. And, and I love that idea. And it, it does go back to the early fathers, I believe of, of the domestic church. Sure. And, and like you said, Luther reclaimed that and has the table talk and all the, 
the idea that you should be doing this stuff at home. And, and there are all these great stories you read in, in church history about families like memorizing catechism together and, mm-hmm. and all this stuff. And I'm like, gee whiz, as I'm having children, does anybody do that? Is that a real thing? You know, and what would that look like in, in, in my family and in our household? And so I've, I've done a little more reading and exploring on that. And, and Wesley has a sermon. Oh, shoot. I can't remember what it's called. Maybe family religion. Uh, and you can listen to a lot of Wesley sermons on YouTube, by the way, everybody. Um, so, um, that was one I remember listening to and it was interesting. And of course, you know, very different context from the 21st century, but some principles that are still, you know, important. And so, um, what we have started doing in my family, uh, to kind of get at some of the things that you were talking about is, um, we've started using a family prayer, which is a shortened version in the book of common prayer. 2019 is the one I'm using, but there are other ones. Uh, there's the daily office with like morning prayer and evening prayer. Right. And then there's a, a kind of a condensed, much condensed version called family prayer. And so we've been doing family prayer, um, not every day, but we try to make it our sort of default setting at dinner. So we'll have dinner around the table, which I also think is very important. Just that piece. You don't think of that as a religious thing necessarily, but I think that's huge. And there's a ton of even secular research about the benefits of sitting down and eating oh, sure. together Absolutely. around the table. Yeah. So we, we have dinner around the table virtually every night. And then after dinner, as people are kind of finishing up, we'll get out family prayer. And so uh, we go through the short little service, and the kids have already memorized, uh, at least the, the older two. Uh, they're three, they're six, three, and, and not one yet, nine months. And so uh, the girls have memorized one or two of the evening prayers. And then we'll read from, uh, I got one right here. We read from this one, uh, the Aylford Rex uh, Bible oh, yeah. Story book. Uh, I saw someone the new plugging that. It wasn't you, though. What's his name? I've also plugged it, but there may be other people doing it as well. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's it's a great little resource, and it, it's Stephen basically Fife. the Bible. Stephen oh, Fife yeah, Stephen plugged Fife. it. Yeah. Stephen Fife is also, uh, full disclosure, the godfather of my children, and ah. uh, he's the pastor. He's also an independent Methodist uh, next town over. So uh, Interesting. We, we get okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and we're, we're very similar in, in some respects, sure, but, yeah. um, so we go, we're going through the new Testament and it basically is the Bible, but it has some, some kind of glosses like built into the text to kind of explain things for children. Um, and that seems to be working well, but for me, th- this is kind of, I'm trying to like reinvent something that, I mean, growing up, we did not have, I mean, we went to church on Sundays. I even went to a, a Catholic school part of my childhood. So I had a lot of good religious and and Christian uh, formation as a child. But at home, we sometimes would pray before we eat. We sometimes would eat together around the table, but it was, it was pretty spotty through my childhood, but we didn't have anything like family prayer time. And, um, and I don't think a lot of people of that generation did really. Um, It's my impression. And so I think that's something that the church really should be investing in recreating that or recovering that um, for, for families today, because I mean, again, there's research on this, your experience in youth ministry, your experience in children's ministry, your mission trips, your Sunday morning church is all huge in the the life of a child, but even bigger is what do you do at home? Right. Yeah. Parents in terms of praying with their children, praying for their children, talking about Christ and their faith. That is the biggest influence over a child's faith formation and whether they 
are believers as adults, whether they, they carry this faith forward or not. And knowing that we need to be doing what we can to equip families, yeah. even if it's starts very small, you know, uh, to do that. And one resource I want to plug, and it's, it's, it's part of that nice convergence of Anglicanism and, and Methodism, is a book by Winfield Bevins, who's an uh, Anglican priest. He's on staff at Asbury Seminary, so he's already got a lot of uh, cross-pollination going mm-hmm. with Methodism. He wrote a book called Grow at Home. And uh, there is a, a video uh, companion to that. You can do it like as a small group study. And mm-hmm. I've done that with a Sunday school class before at my previous church. I'm going to do it again, I'm sure, at this church. And he just goes through some very practical stuff, you know, um, how to start doing this. Because he also was kind of trying to rediscover this mm-hmm. with his own children, right. not having experienced it as a child. And so, um, and I think he was an adult convert uh, to Christianity to begin with. Mm-hmm. So, so that's a great, great little resource that is in that kind of Wesleyan and Anglican vein. Um, and I think I spoke with Winfield. He was in Louisiana um, three or four months ago for an event, and I went to it. And he said that uh, they had been picked up by Zondervan, and they were going to do like a new, uh, new revised version and higher, uh, you know, quality video and all, all that jazz. So that, mm-hmm. that may, I don't know if that's out yet or if it's coming out uh, or what, but um, that's something to be looking for, grow at home. Is a yeah. great resource. Yeah, it's uh, a hard when you're trying to essentially what we're trying to do as we are trying to do family ministry. We're trying to re-enculture families in in the crucible of the church because uh, one of the things uh, I, I think you would agree with this that I tell my people is what we do on Sunday morning together as a corporate church should feel like second nature because we're doing it every day in our homes. Would you agree with that? Yes. And um, and when my children get older, I hope that we will have even more of some of the Sunday morning stuff like Creed and things like that, yeah. that that we're doing together. We'll see what happens. But but certainly just worshiping together and mm-hmm. listening to the Bible together and, and praying together on Sundays. Yeah, that ought to be organically connected, you might say, with what we're doing at home. One of the YouTubers that I really love, and, and this is uh, coming from a de- very different place is uh, mm-hmm. Jonathan Paggio. Are you familiar with him? Oh yeah, Eastern uh, Orthodox. Uh, Jordan Peterson likes him a lot. Yeah. Yes, yes. They've done some work. The Symbolic together. World, I think, is the name of his. Yeah, Symbolic operation. World is his channel. Yeah. It's very good. Um, he always blows my mind. I don't always understand what he's saying, but I'm like, ooh, there's something going on here. But in one of his videos, he talks about the 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 altar table and the dinner table. Like these ought to be like the same in a way. Like yeah. what we do when we gather around this table in the sanctuary and what we do when we gather around the table at home mm-hmm. ought to have kind of a natural connection. And I, I think learning to recover that could be huge for um, not only like holding on in the midst of a culture that's that's going post-Christian, but really like creating a culture that is attractive to people outside the walls right. of the church. And yeah. and so I, I think that's I think that's just a huge missing link that we haven't had, I don't know, for a couple generations maybe on a widespread level. Of course, obviously some families have done a great job of this. Um, but it's I, pretty I think, rare. And so what you had yeah. prevailing in across the whole 20th century in America was this huge centralization of power coupled with like this um, monoculture that took over um, across the country, and um, what that meant was a kind of lowest common denominator 
culture that kids, you know, was shared in with their their classmates, and so um, you know, biblical literacy dropped off earlier half of the 20th century, even as every uh, church attendance was very high, and that's when you mm-hmm. saw the rise of mainline Christian culture, which was uh, nominal Christianity uh, for the most part. It, so it's my wife and I um, have had to culturally detach from uh, popular America. We, we homeschool our kids, and um, we, we live a very privileged life here. We live right next to the church, and the kids, you just heard that one of them discovered the old school bell he, uh, here, and he was ringing that a second ago. It sounds awful. But, um, you know, the, the church building is their second home, and the, the things that we do here on Sunday morning, um, you know, it's weird. I, I grew up a nominal Christian, as did my wife in many regards, and it was only in the context of a, a godless seminary. Boston University School of Theology was where we met each other, and we concluded that the Christian faith was real, and then the rest of our lives has been, okay, if this really is real, what do our lives look like? And then raising our children with that presupposition in place has meant that we we see a mirror in our children as to how authentic our, our faith is. So um, mm-hmm. I have a, a seven-year-old daughter who um, has, hears me preach every Sunday. She sits in the pew. She engages. She's read about half the Bible on her own. We didn't even make her do that. She just saw her mother reading and decided she was going to do it. Um, and then we've we've used um, a catechism with her and with the the two older kids. We have four total. Um, and and the New City Catechism has been an excellent resource, even though it's reformed theologically. They have a mm-hmm. simple version and a complicated version, and the simple version comes with music that's very easy to memorize. And so if if you go on the interwebs, uh, my daughter's fourth birthday, she recited all 52 or 53 answers to the questions. Um, that stuff has taken deep root in her and is hopefully going to be passed down to her brother and her little sisters as well. It's hard to maintain the standard that you set with the first kid yes. as you add more on. But, yes. um, you know, That's even... real. <laughs> yeah, well, and... They don't magically know this stuff. There has to be very intentional indoctrination. There has to be space created on a daily basis to to inform these kids as to what the Bible says and how we live it out together. And of course, yes, eating together. We have breakfast and dinner together almost every evening, and we pray and we we talk about you know the the getting clear on who God is. Just basic doctrinal stuff, but um we realize as we're doing this, most families are not doing this. And mm-hmm. so whereas we feel like we are woefully inept and our children really could get much better instruction in another time and place, we are about the best we're aware of right now, and that's really a sad picture. So I've tried to imagine how is it that we open that door to other people reimagining their family life together where they're not turning on the TV and zoning out for two hours a day, their kids are not looking at screens and and distracted and going off to school for eight hours a day. But there's shared life in the light of God and actively pursuing righteousness as individuals and corporately. Um, so we've imagined doing like YouTube skit videos of how you sit at your table and talk with your kids about God and um, just let our kids go. Or you know, I I'm still not sure exactly what to do, but I am clear. So many pastors say. 
y'all should be worshiping in your homes. And then they don't equip people to do that. Instead, they have a big rock right. band perform at the front that you, people are not going to have a rock band at home. They're, they have them do these liturgies that seem completely inaccessible or they have free form stuff and parents don't feel like they can just riff and do something free form. We, we tell them to do something, but then we don't equip them on how to do that. Um, so I, I think, you know, faith on one hand should be something that proceeds out of a living and active um, personal life. It should be the most natural thing in the world for a parent to speak to their kids about faith and equip them in the faith. But when the parent is under-equipped to do, the, to do that, how do they begin? And that's where you and Stephen Pfeiffer are so useful in pointing to resources going, okay, look, here's an illustrated Bible. Open this with your kids. Read it. Talk through it. See what happens. It even, it even has discussion questions for each reading. Right. Now, I add a lot more to try to get at some of those what is God's heart like kind of thing because it's more kind of like were you paying attention, you know, to mm -hmm. what we just read. But, but yeah— and, and and asking questions is great, you know. So it's amazing what my six year old does here and, and learn and, and you know, seems to get. Yeah, we adults wanna believe I don't know why we wanna believe this, that that faith is so complicated that kids really can't understand it and you need to dumb it down a lot and you really can't read a lot of the Bible together and Heck, we we do, so far as the Book of Common Prayer is concerned, probably two or three days a week, we manage to get down and do morning prayer, and we'll spend about an hour on it, and, you know, our, our eldest is learning to chant, do some of the chants with us, she's memorized a couple of the prayers with us. These are things that children can do and really enjoy doing. Um, there, I would say that children are much more naturally attuned to the numinous than adults like me raised in Western monoculture. monoculture. And so there's just this real lack of um, understanding. You know, here we have this culture that radically overestimates what kids are capable of thinking that they can determine their own gender at six or seven years old, <laughs> right, but right. then radically underestimates what they're actually capable of, which is discerning God and, and the spiritual realities all around us. It's a real warped time we're living in, and, and household religious life is a big part of reclaiming that. So on top of um, some helpful publications that kind of facilitate conversation between parents and kids at home. What else do you think is important if somebody has spent time watching us, listening to us? What what nuggets of wisdom do you have that are helpful to pass on to just a passive observer who's maybe not even ever thought of this before? Is there a word of conviction or a word of um, edification? What, what do you think is helpful to offer? Yeah, well, uh, I, I did one or two videos on this topic, and, and I pointed them back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, like, parents, this is your obligation. You should be doing this. Mm -hmm. And I think often we we think of, of we've given those responsibilities away to the Sunday school or the youth program or the public school or, or whatever it is, mm -hmm. and, and we're kind of like, they're taking care of it for me. Yeah. And, and those may be great resources. They probably are amazing, but it's still the parent's responsibility. So if there's a word of conviction, that's what I would say. In terms of um, just encouragement, I would say just start where you are. And if it's at base level, we're not doing anything. Okay, mm -hmm. like add one thing, you know, and um, we're going to pray before we eat and, you know, or whatever. And, and you can you can do, you can start with simple things. I mean, it might be helpful to start with 
family prayer or, or a structured liturgical rite, your kids might actually like that. But if if you want to just start with, you know, kind of where did you see blessing in your day today? Where did you see God in your day today? Where where did you have struggles in your day today while you're eating dinner? And then okay, we're gonna pray for that at the end of our meal, and you know, give thanks for those things or pray for those issues, and and so. You know, you can work in the Lord's Prayer and, yeah. and and simple stuff like that. Um, it doesn't have to be like I need a theology. I need to I need to be reading you know a Cyril of Jerusalem to figure this stuff out or something like uh-huh. that. But yeah. um, uh, so so I would say just kind of start where you are, and as it is age appropriate, add other things. And I would also echo something you've said already. Um, and I, and I'll. Um, I'll uh, celebrate the fifes again. I know Stephen is going through a catechism with his daughters mm-hmm. when they have dinner. Um, and so uh, you've mentioned that there are a lot of good catechisms. I know the GMC, I think, or, or Seedbed or somebody has just come out with yeah, one. GMC did. Um, yeah. yeah. And I think so, it's through uh, Seedbed. Yeah. North America. Uh, what's that? I, I think it is through uh, Seedbed. I think you were right on both counts. Yeah, yeah. So um, that could, I'm sure is a great resource. The Anglican Church of North America has a catechism. There are a lot of historic ones. Um, you know, as they're getting older, that's something that I think would be a great resource. And um, one that I've used that's very simple is um, the absolute basics of the Christian faith. I've used that with that's groups. Timothy Tennant, uh, isn't it? Bit. Yeah. Huh? Was it T? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tennant, yeah. Okay. So he, uh, he did one called Third Questions, uh, which is another one you can right. check out. Yeah. The, the I, I want to argue with you, and then I want to play devil's advocate. Uh, and the the okay. word of conviction, it, it's not really arguing; it's building on top of. Yes, scripturally, scriptural obedience mandates that you instruct your children. The the scriptures couldn't be any more clear. But also, one of the things that um, I think is clear is that our institutions really have failed to inculcate our children in um, good biblical knowledge and I, uh, Christian identity. Even the church has really failed because. That is not a one day a week or a two day a week affair that is supposed to be surrounded by snacks and candy and games. This is a this is a serious uh, life and death daily uh, value. And one of the things that we find is uh, fathers in particular play a huge role in a child's relationship with God and their integrity mm-hmm. of their faith and whether or not their faith continues outside of the home um, if they do not see a man practicing his faith. Um, as a father, if they don't hear him pray, if they don't see him kneel, if they don't see a contrite and broken heart, then um, even if their mother models that for them, the likelihood of them holding on to that faith in adulthood is much smaller. So men in particular, I do think, need to feel much more convicted than they currently do about modeling faith. I, I don't think that they should ever feel okay about outsourcing their faith to the church, and especially not to the school. Um, let me... Uh, let me, let me um, provide some pushback now. Uh, there are so many adults I know personally and have known over the years who would say, look, I know I should be instructing my kids. I'm just not in a place to do it. I, it doesn't feel right to me. That's not how our household culture is. I, I am not comfortable with this whatsoever. You, you can't ask me to do this. What, what does a loving pastor say in response to that? Oh, I would say... Um and I actually said this in a sermon on Father's Day, um, there is, I think in our culture, at least for a couple generations, this idea that kind of the children kind of need to find their own way and we kind of need to, you know, make a lot of space for them and, um, and that kind of thing. And 
as I see it, God Almighty has put these children under your care. Yeah. And of course, we take very seriously the need to care for them physically, and we get all their shots, and we, you know, do all the stuff, and we say, don't eat that off the ground or whatever, and, mm-hmm. you know, we'll tell them how it is uh, about that kind of stuff, or wear your helmet, or, you know, whatever. Um, how much more important is it to, to care for their souls? Right. And and that is a natural hierarchy that God has built into creation, and not just for humans, I mean, for, for all, all animals, you know, like, we're supposed to care for these. That's why God gave them to us. And and with that comes the authority to, you know, I told my congregation, like, because I said so is a perfectly legit reason for your kids to do something. You don't have to explain yourself or whatever, sure. because you are the one who understands, hopefully, more and, and has the ability to help guide them through the craziness of this world and, and protect them where they need to be protected and don't even realize it. Mm-hmm. And you need to take that seriously with their souls and their spirits, just as you would with their, their physical health. Um, so, but if um, they, if they're not comfortable with it, then is there any word to offer if they just really don't feel comfortable and they're just going, ah, you know, I get, do they call you pastor Daniel? What do they call you? Some of them. I get, I get called all kinds of things. Well, pastor, (laughs) you're very comfortable. You do that in your house. I'm glad to have my kids instructed by you. I really just don't see it happening for me. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I think I might have some more conversation. Like, why not? Like, what's, what's the rub here? I mean, <laughs> why not? Just, yeah. 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 Like, are you just, a, is that scary? Is it daunting? Are you lazy? <laughs> I mean, yeah. is it, is it, I've, I've got 8,000 sports and continuing, uh, you know, extracurricular things going on and I yeah. don't know how practically I could make that work. Is it a priority issue? In other words, sure. Um, in our family schedule, like, uh, I mean, but you know, they're well, and the priority they're, they're, conversation they're, is a huge conversation. Yeah, yeah. Not, I mean, especially with kids, but not just with kids. There, are, a lot of times, people stack priorities in their lives that just don't allow much room for God. And I found as a pastor, I just have to say, you got to give them up. You know, if if your child cannot have a shared prayer life with his father because he plays too much baseball, he's got to give up baseball. And you know, for yeah, some which people, which of these is more important? I mean, yeah. really, in the long run. And, um, and I think some of that might just be kind of, what would you say, peer pressure? Like, we're just kind of going along with what everybody else is doing. And we're not really thinking critically about my purpose as a parent. My, you know, my purpose, we're not being purposeful about how we live. And, and that's a huge, huge thing, I think. Um, yeah, how do you, we'll go ahead. How do you wake people up who are asleep? You know, that's that's the, our job, and so many people are. They know, they're they in church because they know they should wake up, and yet they're so comfortable being asleep, and they want us in some sense to help them participate in the illusion that they're actually awake and doing what they're supposed to be doing when our job is yeah. actually to wake them up and say, you're, you're not doing it. And it's in, in such a time where the cultural norm is so against parents discipling kids in their home. I mean, there's a cultural suspicion of parents who behave that way. There is actual public rhetoric now of your children are not your children alone. They belong to society as a whole. You know, when right. when that yeah, is I part of the of Yeah, when that's the ethos in the air, then there is a reluctance on the part of parents being, oh, I'm gonna fit into that stereotype. These are my kids. You stay away from them. I'm gonna make sure that they honor the Lord above the state, above the culture. 
um, you know, I'm going to look like a cult member that, to some people. Right. Well, you might. I mean, I mean, if you believe in God, somebody's going to say you you were devoting your entire life to a delusion. Mm-hmm. But I think there might even be an opportunity though in that because I think a lot of people intuitively get, no, these really are my kids, and and I'm going to raise them, and and these other kind of influences that are coming in. I think people are getting more uncomfortable with that. And maybe that creates an opportunity for us to say, here's a better way, y'all. And this is what we should have been doing all along. And if we had been, maybe none of this other stuff would have happened. Right. Um, maybe there's an opportunity there. That's, that's my uh, more hopeful uh, take on that maybe. But Yeah. The, I, I, that makes perfect sense, but you've read revelation as much as I have. And while God, people are actively suffering for their sins rather than repenting and turning towards the Lord, they curse him all the more. And so mm-hmm. that's, that's unfortunately human nature, is even as we are a, a shining city on a hill, uh, devout Christian families are not suffering the ravages of modernity, post-modernity, the way that uh, everyone else is. Um, oftentimes when we highlight it, the response is not, gee, I want what they have. It's, I hate those guys. <laughs> and yeah, so, yeah. so, you know, to what's, what's really highlighted, well, I don't know, what, what's really been interesting for me is to watch how many people are just not willing to be hated uh, by the, the monoculture uh, to stand by Jesus. And I, so that's what I find myself preaching about a lot of the time is um, equipping people to be hated to be scorned, to be scoffed at and mocked. Uh, and I, I think we are seeing that generally across culture, although I, I would agree that there are individuals and families that do see what Christ has to offer and are drawn to that. Um, but I, I just think for a long time, mainline Protestantism in particular was drawn to this notion that if we just live differently, the world will be drawn to us. We can draw the whole world in. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that that experiment has been concluded as a failure. But yeah. do you see it um, different than me? I think I do. I mean, it's going to vary from person to person. And um, I'm not sure this is a church growth strategy, you know, mm-hmm. but um, I think it does happen. Um, we've got, in fact, I had a conversation with a fellow just this week um, who's very much willing, he and his family, to, to live different than the culture. They live in a city and they're talking about moving here small town precisely to have a different kind of environment to raise their kids in. And I think there's a good bit of that happening. I could be, I mean, not like, you know, 50% of the population or something, but I I think there are a lot of people who are looking at things like relocating and, and, you know, trying to, to get a different life than what they have had for Mm -hmm. the sake of their children. Right. And um, I mean, that was even one of, for, for our family, uh, coming back to so the church I'm serving now, mm-hmm. I served previously. I didn't go into all this. Oh, but really? I was here for five years. Yeah, uh, got appointed to another church that did not disaffiliate. This church did disaffiliate and said, "Hey, would you come back?" And part of our conversation was, "Where do we want to live to raise our children? Right. What kind of community, you know, is going to reinforce Christian faith, um, or at least not be hostile to it?" And right. and so. So we're kind of part of that movement, you know, but there are other people who are, who are doing that same thing. Um, and I don't know how many, you know, it's kind of yeah. like the, the, the young adults coming back to liturgical churches. That's a real thing. I'm right. part of that, yeah. but I don't know how widespread that is. Sure. You know, uh, 
So. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah, when speaking in generalities, it's really hard to have the right eagle eye perspective to speak to how big certain phenomena are. And you're right, there is right. homeschooling in particular is much bigger than it's been for 150 years in this country. So there are some encouraging yeah. trends towards parents not um, outsourcing their parenting to, to other institutions and kind of questioning some of the presuppositions that previous generations just accepted. Um, I, I had an interesting conversation with Bishop Scott Jones of the GMC. He came in and sat down with me a couple months ago, and I portrayed to him some of, some of my cynicism that's more in line with like the Benedict Option uh, by mm-hmm. um, Rod Dreher, who says mm-hmm. that the culture is too far gone, the church needs to split off entirely, let the culture crash, and then we can come back in with wisdom and resources. The Bishop Jones said he doesn't ascribe to that at all. He He's more optimistic about uh, the church being salt and light in the midst of the world right now and being able to redeem a lot that, that I and Dreher would probably say is lost. So I And I could be completely wrong uh, on a lot of my assessment. I'm just, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting the ways in which clergy are content to be optimistic and look through rose-tinted glasses and then uh, other ways in which they're not, you know, so I'm Pollyanna-ish in some ways, and in other ways I'm, oh boy, I, I just don't see how we're going to turn this ship around, uh, this Western culture ship around. So, uh, but rest assured, both you and I, even if we're not in the same denominational body, we're going to be ministering to our contexts and trying to to build up the people that we're serving where we are. Uh, any prognostications about the next few years in America, what's going to happen in the Wesleyan movement or Christianity more broadly, or do you just think it's just the I Wild think, West right now? What do you think? I think it, it is a little bit of Wild West. Now, I'm, I'm like a history buff, and one of the things, and I've been saying this for several years now, uh, we've seen a lot of the mainline denominations splitting. So you got the ACNA and the Episcopal Church, the yeah. GMC and the UMC, and, and, and so on, Presbyterian, Lutherans. Last time we saw that happening was like the 1840s and 1850s. I think that's a very worrisome thing. Uh, because that preceded American. a civil war? Yes, yeah. yes, uh, in, in the run-up to the civil war. So just as an American, I'm very, and as somebody who wants to raise my children and, and you know, not live through something horrific, uh, that, that is very concerning. Uh, flip side, though, as a pastor— Civil War was also a time of a great revival, um, you know, and, and there's a reason why the Bible Belt runs through the South. And it, it, I think, had to do with coming through all this, people turning back to God. Yeah. Um, another big picture thing that I'm really interested in is just there's a book called uh, Shall the Religious Inherit the Earth mm-hmm. uh, by a demographer. He's Canadian. I think he's an atheist. He's, he's working in London. Last I heard Eric Kaufman. And he basically is looking at data saying, you know, in, in 100 years, everybody's going to be like Amish or Pentecostal or traditionalist Roman Catholic, and it's not going to be a secular society. So I'm curious to see, just based on birth rates and religious retention rates, especially if there is a, re- a renaissance of family discipleship, mm-hmm. I'm interested to see just how demographic trends may change in, in directions that people may not expect. I don't know. We'll see. Um so I'm curious about that. Yeah. Your answer um, is so much more interesting than I thought it was going to be. That's really, that's all exciting stuff to look at and think about. Did you have something else yeah, you were going to build um, on top? Of, I, I feel like I interrupted you. Well, no, I, I, one of the things that I think, and this is me, mm-hmm. man, 
most of my sort of childhood and young adulthood, the growing edge of American Christianity has been kind of the big box, mega church, non-denom type of thing, like you're right. talking about. Yeah. I wonder if how sustainable that is, and, and maybe it's already running out of steam. You might be more up on some of that than, than I am. Um, and so I wonder what what opportunities there might be for more historically rooted mm-hmm. expressions of Christianity uh, to really to really grow and and to really uh, shine. Maybe um, I don't know if that will happen, but I, I wonder if there's an opportunity there. Um, certainly, I mean, I was one who in college was going to a lot of, and I still love contemporary praise and worship music. I got no problem with it. Um, like some people kind of you know complain about or theologically it's inappropriate or yeah, whatever. Yeah, but. But I do have concerns about kind of just a consumeristic mentality in, yeah. in any kind of worship style. Sure. Yeah. And and I wonder if if there's an opportunity for us to kind of get around that and say, yeah, it's going to be discipleship, not spiritual consumerism. And it is possibly going to be costly uh, in ways that it wasn't 50 years ago. And and are you still in? Let's follow Jesus. And, and you know, um I don't know. I, I think it's definitely a time of a lot of flux, as everybody can see. And, yeah. and a lot of things that we used to count on are not very stable and uh, in all kinds of areas of our culture and society. And so it, it is a little Wild West feeling to me. Um, yeah. So and, and there's both kind of trepidation with that, but also like, you know, maybe something something new could happen here that nobody sees coming. And uh, hypothetically, something new is always possible. I, I'm, I'm intentionally staying Methodist in this time because I think the Methodist heritage uniquely negotiates forces that can easily be pitted against each other. I, I think it's unique in that regard and needed for the present cultural moment. I think it, it can uniquely answer the challenges of the moment, and so that's why I'm continuing to, to blow this trumpet even whenever it seems like it's all falling apart. I'm hopeful that this time of falling apart can regalvanize um, uh, Wesleyan Christians to 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 not throw any babies out with the bathwater, but to to retain what's absolutely essential for the faith. So, even though you're you're uh, out on your own right now, I, I do hope that you'll rejoin a larger body that is at least uh, very friendly to to Wesleyanism. And I I hope to be in uh, future unified ministry with you and Stephen Fife and, and all the others that have for the time being had to separate. Uh, let's continue to pray for a future where we all come together this side of heaven. Amen. Amen. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's conclude our talk there. We're going to, we're, I'll, I'll cut the feed and then you and I can pray together uh, a bit personally. But if, if, uh, if anybody's watched this thing all the way through, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you benefited from Daniel's wisdom. I'm going to put stuff in the show notes that will connect you with his channel and some of his offerings, um, you'll obviously benefit a lot from uh, following Daniel and listening to him, and then uh, just continue to pray for the Methodist movement broadly and people like Daniel and me who've been deeply affected by it, and uh, for our churches that that suffer us and uh, support us in this, this weird season, this Wild West season we're in. All right, thanks, friends. I'll see you next time.